Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for Episode 5. Thank you for listening. If you can take the time, please leave a rating and review. It helps us get attention. Today's guest is artistic director of the New Perspectives Theater Company, Melody Brooks. It is an off-and-off-off-Broadway nonprofit company with a focus on the underserved community and promotes work by women and minorities. Melody is also a member of the League of Professional Theater Women. Today we discuss how and why she started New Perspectives, the structures that keep nonprofits from being big or small, and how she has managed the company for 30 years. We also touch on why artists commit to a life in the arts, regardless of how their finances shape up. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Melody Brooks, to the podcast. Happy to have you here. I'm happy to be here. This is being recorded May 6, 2020, amidst the COVID-19 shutdown lockdown. Could you give us a two-minute recap of how you got to where you are in your current career? So I'm from central New York, a town called Auburn, which is literally smack dab in the middle of the state. And when I was a kid, there was a professional children's theater program. Um, we had a dinner theater and eventually a, a summer stock theater. So I enrolled in that when I was eight years old with my sisters, but I stayed with it. They did not. And I was in that program until I was in high school. And then in high school, I did continue to do theater. And I always thought I was going to be an actor. That was what I wanted. And I had the opportunity to come to New York City. I was enrolled in a local college, and then I went to London for a year. And then through my local college, came to uh, Albany for a, a, this is all the State University of New York Theater Festival. And I met the woman who was running the Women's InterArt Center in New York. And InterArt was a term that they coined uh, to really integrated media arts theater, film, and video. So I moved to New York. It was great, and I stayed then, still thinking I was going to be an actor for a few years. But one of the things that I discovered, so much of the work that was being done, I really had a much bigger picture in my head. I sort of knew more than the directors that were, because I'd been doing it for so long. And I started to become a director at that point. And I realized it's because I had a lot more to say than actors are ever allowed to in terms of control of the product. So being a director was a, a better choice. And then after I'd been here about 10 years, a lot of people said, why don't you have your own theater company? And I was like, at one point, hey, that's a good question. Why don't I have my own theater company? And so uh, in 1991, I was given access to a space on 8th Avenue and 46th Street. And at the time, I had a a corporate job, so I could afford it. And so I took the space and gathered a group of people together to form the New Perspective Theatre Company. And its mission was really based on my views about what theatre is supposed to be, which is to enlighten and engage the community. Also, uh, a multiracial company, because that's what New York is. It has to look like the community. And we had uh, both educational programs, new play development, and looking at the classics. So we had a three-pronged mission. Uh, we had that space until 2000 and the end of 2005. And then, of course, that was torn down for a luxury t- high-rise tower. And we were given a community space on West 37th Street, which is much smaller, but continuing that mission. And we have remained really small ever since for lots of reasons and, you know, mostly because 
our constituency that we serve is not financially capable of supporting us, unlike many other theater companies. But here we are. It'll be our, in June, on June 18th, we'll celebrate our official um, 18th, 28th birthday because we were founded in 91, but we weren't incorporated until June of 92. Your company is not, is a nonprofit, but it's not a big nonprofit. And so I just looked up before this second stage nonprofit has a budget of 18 million per year. Manhattan Theater Club has a budget of 27 million a year and Roundabout is the biggest has a budget of 60 million a year. But you are not like you've had this company for 30 years and you are not even approaching that size of budget. We have a budget of under $100,000 a year. But part of that is, too, that one of my big complaints, if we're going to talk about finances here, is that in the nonprofit world, the powers that be only want to know what your cash budget is. And the whole off-off-Broadway community survives on tons of in-kind contributions, starting with the artists who all get paid, and you know this, right, a pittance uh, or a stipend. But also, we have... Our space is a community space. It's very cheap because it can only be given to a nonprofit and it becomes a a polling place whenever there's an election. So we're penalized because we're not paying $5,000 a month rent. Whereas if we paid $5,000 a month rent, our budget would be pushed over the limit of where large foundations would begin to start looking at us. So, you know, we pay a price for not paying rent. Um, we get a lot of volunteer labor. We have interns in the summer that are paid through other programs. Like there's a city program called Ladders for Leaders. A lot of them get grants from their universities to come and, and be with us. And they get a lot out of it. Our interns are really, really value the experience at New Perspectives. But we can't count any of that in terms of our operating budget, our cash budget. So we never can apply for the larger pots of money, as opposed to looking at our track record, our 30 years, the fact that we are very frugal, we're not wasting money, you know, that we've managed to acquire a lot of and other in-kind things like um, materials and supplies for shows, sets and costumes, all of that. So if you put a value to all of that, our budget would be more like $250,000 a year, which is the level at which... Things like New York Community Trust and big foundations won't even allow you to apply unless you have that big of a budget, but they only want it to be cash. It makes absolutely no sense, but that's the reality. And I think that's good to talk about because that's a choice you make every year. Like you, like if you wanted your budget to go over 250000 so you could have access to that stuff, you could make a bunch of decisions, but it would completely change how you operate and it might change your mission and it might change that. So I just think it's important that people know that you've been doing this for 30 years and know you haven't become a second stage because that's not your thing, but you have complete ownership of this new perspectives and and where you're going and the direction you go and the people you support, the artists you support, the writers, etc. No, it is true. It, it is a choice and it's a trade-off. There are days when I think we could do it differently. Um, we could have members, artists pay, pay money to be a member of New Perspectives, develop their work. I've ne- there are companies that do that in, in off-off-Broadway land. I've never wanted to because not only is it not giving access to people who need it the most, but also there's no quality control. If you say, here, be a member, pay this amount of money a year, then we're obligated to either use you as an actor or put your your play on. And and the companies that have done that, it's, it's a very hit or miss situation in terms of the quality of the work. 
And do you employ union actors? Like, do you use Actors' Equity or do your designers, do you put them on USA contracts at all? We do both. So for Actors' Equity, we operate under the showcase code, um, and that limits the number of performances you can give in, in the amount of rehearsal time, but you are required to only pay actors their expenses. Um, we'd like to pay them more, I and mean, this is the other um, insanity of the showcase code, if you go to pay more, so you want to pay a stipend or something to your actors, then you're hit with the New York State labor law, which says you then have to pay, that's no longer just an expense reimbursement, it is in fact some kind of salary, so you have to pay unemployment insurance and workers' compensation and all the rest of it, so it's a difficult thing, but we we use both equity and non-equity, we pay them the same regardless of whether they're in equity or not. We use union designers or not. It depends on people's... We uh, really work with the people that we want to work with. And so if it's a union designer, the unions, the, the set design, the United Artists, they're actually more reasonable, I think, in terms of their requirements for off-off-Broadway productions. They're not going to try to wring millions out of you. They understand the reality, I think, a little bit better than equity does. I'll probably get in trouble with equity for saying that, but <laughs> no, no, no. It's I. It's a well-known thing. Uh, it's it's well documented. You can just go look at the information, and that's the thing I've asked other people on this interview: should you join the union or not? And for actors, it's a harder thing because once you go, you have to get permission to not do something equity. There's all these rules. Whereas for a designer, absolutely join because you can go do a non-union job, no problem. You can also, they do, uh, oh, I should know this, um, but it's a contract where it's like not binding to anything. It's just like a one-off contract. It's a single use, single. And also like you can do riders to those one-off contracts. So if in fact a show moved, and they rarely do, that's the other problem with the equity showcase. It's premised on the notion that some of these productions are going to move and make lots of money. And I think less than 1% over the course of 20 years has ever done so. With the designers, you can add a rider that says if it moves, if it goes somewhere else, the designer has to come with it. You know, that makes it pretty simple to ensure that a designer's work is is respected. And, you know, if it's part of what makes a show successful, they should get to come with it too. And I think that's often why a lot of designers do shows, perhaps at New Perspective, or somewhere where they're not going to get a big budget or they're not going to get a big paycheck, is because they see... Well, they see merit in the project itself, or they see a path to the future. So I think it's good that people can put in sort of sweat equity for the future. Well, it's true, too. For emerging designers, it's a way to build their resume as well. You know, and even though New Perspectives is small, and we have been around for a long time, and we are well regarded in terms of the quality of our work. So having New Perspectives on a young designer's resume actually means something, versus having some company that's been around for a year and a half that nobody knows or can't judge the value of that. So, Absolutely. And plus, you as a person are very active in the theater world. You go talk to groups and you try to get involved with other companies. People know who you are and know your company. Yeah, like you said. <laughs> but I think this is good because I think if somebody is thinking, I want to start a nonprofit theater, I mean, already we've laid out. Don't do it. That's my recommendation. Do not do it. You put blood, sweat, and tears into it. And so you're producing a lot of good work and giving a lot of people a lot of opportunities versus if you wanted to do like the bigger nonprofit, potentially it's less work. I, I don't know that it's less work, but it's just different. No, it's really about the, 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 the landscape has changed completely. I'm not saying don't, don't have a theater company. You can certainly do that. But the mechanism of a 501c3 is so outdated and so impossible anymore. 
when I founded New Perspectives, I had already been working for 11 years in the nonprofit theater community in New York. And when I first came here, which was in, in 1979, 100 years ago, right, to do my, my program at the Women's Inter Arts Center, that was a full year. And then I actually worked in some small nonprofits, so I really learned about grant writing and all of that. And there was actually quite a lot of foundation and government money for theater companies in the in the early at the late 70s and then Ronald Reagan became president and cut funding to public education to health care to mental health and and so the foundation world switched its priorities from the arts to all those other places when we were incorporated in 1992 if i had known then what i know now I would have incorporated as a woman-owned small business and would have gotten way more support. I could have had the resources to fully staff the organization because our mission was great, but also I knew what I was doing. I've been, you know, not just artistically, but structurally because I had spent 11 years apprenticing around town with all these other theater companies and I knew nonprofit management and governance. And so the timing was awful. It was the, the moment was already passed, but nobody knew it yet. So there's been a lot of other things since then. And so what I what I recommend to people is there are nonprofit umbrella organizations like Fractured Atlas. I think the Dance Theater Workshop still does it. You'd be much better off, you know, having your company and, and registering with one of those umbrella corporations because really the only money right now is private money. So if you have friends and family members who want to make a donation, they can make it through one of those umbrella organizations and you can run your company because you get, more, you know, if you run it as a sole proprietor, you get a lot more tax write-offs. There's not the regulatory burden because the other thing that Ronald Reagan and his you know which has been a ongoing thing with the Republican Party is they really try to uh, eliminate nonprofit organizations they try to destroy them so all of the rules and regulations it's also part of the funding problems that I was talking about before is that the burdens that are put on nonprofits you know and yet if you're a, 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 the, the the fetish of small business, ownership in this country, you can go bankrupt every year and have no obligation for any financial cost, rename yourself and restart, you know, um, that's why I say I would not recommend anybody start a 501c3 organization because uh, unless you have access to like a million dollar endowment, it's, it's so much, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I myself have gotten into producing and you look at nonprofit route or commercial route. And for me, it's like, I don't want to mess with the nonprofit route. Like it is just so yeah, okay, there there are benefits, perhaps not enough to make it worth what I consider to be a headache of paperwork and complications and what you're saying regulations. So it's just like, I, if I can't make it work commercially, I'm not I'm not even going to go the nonprofit route unless a nonprofit comes to me and says, Hey, we want to work with you. In which case I'll be like, Oh, yeah, please, let's do it. But for myself, it's like I'm never going near nonprofit. You know, people think about, oh, I'll be a nonprofit and then I can get grants. Well, there are no grants to be gotten unless you already have an established company and tons of money to begin with. So if you come from wealth or you have access to wealthy people who want to support you, then but even that they're they're changing the nature of tax deductions, all of that. So uh, the landscape is and I, I don't agree with it. I hate it, but the, 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 we are, there is an absolute fetish in this country for, you know, small business, quote, and we see what's happening now with the coronavirus. 
those, you know, qualify as a small business if you have under 500 employees, which, you know, doesn't seem like a small business to me, but, you know, they manipulate the, the definition of small business. Uh, and the amount of federal money that has gone into the, not just now, but throughout the last 50 years and the manipulation of that system and access to money from the Fed for next to nothing, you know. Um. I, I mean, there there are plenty of publicly listed companies that you can go buy their stock on the stock market that have less than 500 employees. There's just something that doesn't make sense about how, how can you be publicly traded? So anybody could buy a million dollars of your stock and and yet you are a small business. Just crazy. <laughs> it's all, you know, it is the world of finance and funding. It is, and it's interesting because I do know a lot about it. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. Um, I understand it, but it doesn't mean I, I in, embrace it in any way, shape, or form. So Okay, so now that we've put everybody to sleep with all this talk of regulation... <laughs> And everybody has stopped listening to this podcast already. Let's find out about your creative personality. So what is your favorite theater show to watch as an audience member? So I really appreciate a a good musical. You know, of course, I'm very picky and very judgmental sitting in the audience. But there's I love nothing better than to not be than to have something be so good that I just lose myself in it. And I think that most often happens in a, in a, a, a good musical. And some dramatic works but again I'll tell you one of my all-time favorite productions and this virus really upset me because I saw the original production of How I Learned to Drive Paula Vogel's play years ago and I was just devastated and floored by it I mean I sat in my chair in the audience for 20 minutes and I was with my sister and she surprised me at Christmas with tickets for the revival they were doing with the original cast that we were supposed to go see on March 28th and of course, we couldn't. The original cast. So, isn't that aren't, aren't the people in that show like sixteen? It's a f- memory play, so it doesn't really matter. Okay, I, I've I've seen it one time, and it was at a college, so they were all young. So maybe that's what my memory has. Yeah, it's an ensemble. There's two main characters, and then there's like I think four other people that play all the other parts. But it was Mary Louise Parker and um, David Morse, who are just utterly brilliant. Do you have a favorite piece of art? I'm an impressionist uh, in, at heart. I mean, I love Nighthawks, which is not particularly impressionistic. Not big on sort of the Renaissance religious stuff. Monet, and I like his work. Do you have a favorite art book or resource? There's a lot out there that is that you like, that you use, and you synthesize things um, to create your own uh, sort of methodology or techniques. And, and I, I talk to actors of, like about this all the time because they go to one school, so they're like, you know, doing Stanislavski or they're doing Meisner or something, and that ultimately you have to create your own. You have to figure out what works for you um, and across multiple settings that you've got to have a process that works no matter who's directing, no matter where you are. And so you have to put all that together. So I think that anybody who tells you they have one source, I would be skeptical of ever working with. <laughs> okay. And here's a question that maybe, maybe as an artistic director, you don't need this a lot because you have so much going on. If you need to draw inspiration where do you go? I'm a huge political junkie. I read a lot of 
blogs, uh, you know, certainly all left-wing progressive. And also, I like I read history. I read things that people might find odd. To cross between, you know, history and politics and even, you know, some financial things. And, and that is, for me, the inspiration... You know, I'll give you a for instance. The first time I ever directed Macbeth, um, I had been doing a lot of research with a friend who was a food historian, so we actually put in a medieval banquet with the production. But also the stuff that I was reading, my statement that I ended up wanting to make with that production was that, and this was Clinton administration, right, was that we had de-evolved to a medieval economic state. You know, and Clinton would talk about this, and then they would say it's the economy, stupid. With Clinton, he used to say that under Reagan... 2% of the population had 50% of the wealth. By the time we got to Clinton, 1% of the population. To me, reading about the medieval world and the medieval economic state was source material for me to do the production of Macbeth. Historical Macbeth reigned from 1040 to 1057. So that's my inspiration is... What's going on in the world? What does human history have to contribute to our understanding of how we got here? Because to me, that's the point of theater, right? That it is, yes, it, it's entertaining, but it's, it's really a much more fundamental, foundational practice for human society. I'll work on a lot of things. I, I see them so many times. Like I read them, and then by the time we get to a dress rehearsal where you can invite a friend or something, I've seen it a hundred times. And so I often invite people and I say, okay, there's this thing. It's like, it's not good, or maybe it's boring or because I've seen it a hundred times. And then they come and they watch it and I'm bored out of my mind because I'm, you know, I'm looking for the light cue or something and they just love it. And they're like, oh, it's good because their brain is like working to process all of what you're describing, like the history and the whatever. And they're putting it together for the first time and like totally involved. That's what's important here is making our brains work and making our brains think. And while everybody loves to go see a tap dancing show, they also love to go and think for two hours and really concentrate about subtlety and history, you know, all that. The audience is the reason that we're doing this. When we're working on a show, I will, you know, I often say we are, at the end of the day, we are opening the doors and charging people money. The impact on the audience is the point. Otherwise, you can perform in your shower. I say, why should I give you my 10 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever? You know, you can pay me if you, if this, if this is really just your journey. We can do this behind closed doors. We can have private dinners and do it, but it, but it has to be about what is the impact on the audience? How are we challenging them to think, to reveal things about themselves or about society that they hadn't thought about. And I think that there's way too little of that happening in theater that it has become, certainly in commercial theater. And it's not that I can't appreciate a, a good tap dance, because even that, if you understand the history of where tap comes from, from the oppression of the Irish and the African slaves, then you can totally deal with that on a different level, as well as the beauty of it and all of that. What music do you listen to? It's very eclectic. I mean, I like I listen to show tunes, Rodgers and Hammerstein, because I that's what I grew up performing. I also listen to classic seventies rock because that was my youth. What are some of your hobbies? So much of my work is probably like other people's hobbies. So doing the research into women playwrights from the past, writing you know things up about the the work that we're doing or the the things that we're trying to accomplish. So. I was th- I love to travel, I- and I always have, and so that really though is dependent on on having the money to do it. If I have the money, then I will travel. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
and when coronavirus is over. So that's sort of you as a creative person. Now let's see what you think of finances or money. And before we start that, can you describe your demographic? I just turned 61, um, which is unbelievable to me. It's unfathomable that I'm that old. And I'm white, female. I have a, actually my college degree is in film and theater. Thankfully, the state of New York, the New York State University system, has a college without walls. It's called Empire State College, where you can actually put together all of your, both your academic coursework and practical. So the, the first production that I directed in New, York, in New York City way back when was actually part of what allowed me to get my degree. So you're from Auburn, New York. How big of a city is that? Now, that used to be about 40,000 people, and I have a feeling it's probably less now. But then when you went to college, you left there? Yes, I went to London for a year on an independent study program through the State University of New York. I went to the local, well, I went to the local college first, and I went to London for my second year. Then I went back to the local college for the third year and came to New York for the fourth year, which was all accredited through the State University of New York. I was exposed to a lot of different things, and obviously, you know, spending a year in London was great. But the downside of that is friends of mine who went to, you know, like Yale or some more prestigious colleges, they really came out of that with a network. That's the part I regret of, of doing it the way I did it, was that not having a network of people talking financially. Because, you know, I taught for 10 years at Long Island University in the communication studies and theater department. And one of the things that I say to everybody I know, whether they're young or whether they're people who have children, do not go into debt for your undergraduate degree. Um, and that's another thing that's radically changed. You know, I have an under, I have a, a BFA. I don't have an, a master's degree because when I was in starting out, you didn't need one. And suddenly over the course of time, it became de rigueur to have a MFA if you were going to have a paying career in the theater. And we have great state universities and someone's going to demand that you get a master's, regardless of whether it's in the arts or not. But just this debt that people are accruing to get an undergraduate degree when they then have to go on to get a master's degree is just insanity. Um, it makes no sense. Do you consider yourself bad with money or good with money? I'm good with money, although I don't have any. I don't have it because, again, it's part of the choice. I'm very good with other people's money. Before I was at LIU for uh, eight years, I was in an educational consulting firm, and I was a contract administrator and program manager. And my job was to do all the budgeting for major national programs and to manage all that money. So I was very good at it. And then I you know, managed the money for new perspectives. But there are some people who would say I'm not good at it because I don't push for us to get the maximum amount of revenue and grow us to some big, you know, to second stage or whatever. And those are, those are artistic choices. And then personally, I left a, that corporate job where I was making a lot of money in the, in the early 90s. It's also why I was able to take that original theater space because I... Ha ha! Thought you know I tried to wanted to make my living through theater, and I have done, but but it hasn't been much of a living. I do occasionally work help other people, you know, as a consultant for doing their grant writing and proposals. And one of the things that sort of gives me a little bit of an edge is that I understand all the budgeting, so I can help them with their budgets and their financial reports and things like that. And there's been lots of companies that I've gotten lots of grant money for for doing it for new perspectives. It it's it's a different thing because, you know, our mission is so specific and I don't have a great need for material things in my life. So my, my income is fine and I'm lucky I have uh, subsidized housing because I lived in house kitchen when nobody else did. We were 
you'd want to talk about a war zone. And so I was sort of grandmothered into my renovated apartment building so that it's income-based. So I'm, I'm lucky in that regard. It's either a blessing or a curse because I never had to pay a normal rent in New York City. I never was pushed to just go out and make a lot of money to pay my rent. If somebody were to write New Perspectives, a check for $250,000 today, would you continue on as you are like, and use that to, I don't know, put on a big budget show or something? Or would you try to go the second stage route? Second stage roundabout and Manhattan Theater Club, they have a, they exist on their subscriber base. And so they are somewhat, you know, beholden to that subscriber base and to their board members who give them big money. They they, they, they don't have the freedom we have. Someone sent us a check for $250,000. I would try to produce some of the plays we have developed that we've never had the money to produce, but I wouldn't put it on in a huge, you know, theater I would try because we've got four or five scripts I'd love to do and I would pay people better right that we'd actually be able to give people more money to do the work and get it done so that's how I would use it and and spread it out right share the wealth spread it out and maybe not even spend it all in one year but that has been a trap when there was a lot of money available from foundations or from the government companies that had been in the trenches for years suddenly got a million dollars they were out of business in, within four years because they were pushed to become the state, you know, this 501c3 corporation, which they already were, but having an, an artistic director, an executive director, uh, a general manager, um, you know, all kinds of, they put on all this staff and they couldn't sustain it because there wasn't a second million dollar gift coming down the road. So it happened to, to a lot of companies where, you know, the supposed gift of a big, huge grant killed them. What did your finances look like when you started out on your career? When I was in, you know, my father died when I was young, and so I was eligible to have uh, Social Security and veterans subsidies till Ronald Reagan got rid of all those, right? So the, the first four of my siblings, we had that. And that really enabled me to go to college and then, you know, even going to London because I had a, a, a and it was state university tuition, so it wasn't expensive at all. So I wasn't a starving artist in the beginning of my career. Yeah. How old were you when that happened, when your father passed away? I was 11. The rule used to be that you got Social Security if your parent died um, until you were 18, unless you went to college. And then you could get it through college. Then Reagan took that away, that you, it stopped at 18. It didn't matter whether you were going to college. So think about all those middle-class kids who, who might not have gone to college after Reagan because they didn't have that support. It wasn't a huge ton of money. You know, I also came into Hell's Kitchen at that time and lived, I paid $70 a month rent for 20 years because my building was, you know, city owned and it was, there were trade-offs. We was in pretty bad shape and all of that. But that enabled me to not really worry too much about my survival. My first day job was at Bank Street College of Education. So that ended up putting me on this track of a mix between theater and education. It was never my intention. It was just really serendipitous. I worked in the um, student services office at Bank Street College of Education, and then the pay there was horrible. And then I moved over to the Academy for Educational Development because a friend worked there. And I went first in as administrative assistant, but, you know, I'm a capable human being, as are most theater artists, we're actually really smart and capable. We could do many, many things. We just choose not to do them. And that's the, the corporate entity. It was a nonprofit, but it was, you know, multi-million dollar nonprofit. 
doing educational programs across the country. And I was there for eight years. You know, so I was making $50,000 a year in 1991. I don't know what the equivalent is now. But nobody, starting salaries aren't even $50,000 a year now. So I know it's, uh, so, so I was able to take over the space that I took over. I was personally subsidizing it. And that's part of the problem is that you don't think about... It's always all about the work, right? Getting the work done, finding ways to get the work, as opposed to, oh, I'll keep this job for 20 years and then I'll have a pension. It is the place from which I have the limited annuity that I have, which is probably more than a lot of other artists who are in my situation, but that's because it was a bit, they had a very generous contribution plan and because I was a, a program officer. You know, otherwise, I would never, I, I have never put anything into like an IRA or stuff like that. So that's just been sitting there all these years, which make my, my old age a little more comfortable. It's not like I can go splurge, but... Um... So you're the third person in their 60s that we've had on. You got, I mean, I realize you guys have been around and like you're sort of closer to the end of your career than you are the beginning. So you have the nostalgia that you can look back on. You, do, you guys do make it sound like it would have been easier to start in the 80s. <laughs> Even with Ronald Reagan. New York, it was gritty. It was ugly. And you had to want to be here and do it. But it was it was easier. You know, it was even easier before that. I remember being at a seminar with Joe Chaikin, who had been part of the original group theater, right? And this was in the 80s. And, and already the real estate prices and all of that were making it difficult. But uh, someone asked him about that, and he said, you know, how they managed it in the group theater. And he said, oh, well, everybody would just throw in five bucks, and we'd rent a loft. And, you know, we laughed at that. When I moved to New York, I told you I paid $70 a month rent. It was not that bizarre. Other friends of mine were paying $150 a month. The person I knew who paid the most was $400 a month, and they had this beautiful apartment on the Upper West Side, right, on Riverside Drive. It was in the 80s when the the whole financial world became, you know, dominant, where these outrageous salaries, the notion that corporations, the CEO of a corporation's only job was shareholder value increase. Even if they broke the law, it didn't matter. So the whole world changed in terms of how this is perceived. The cost of real estate, the cost of living, home ownership, all of that. We know whether you're in the arts or not, that that has changed radically for everyone. Are you a saver or a spender? I'm a spender, mostly. I mean, although I have small savings, you know, for years, this is the other thing. I grew up as a saver. We had savings accounts that you got paid interest on. 5% interest. There was those massively high interest rates that they were paying on money market accounts, like 14%. And then when everything crashed, now it's like 0.01%. I didn't have a savings account in the 90s because you had to pay bank fees to just even have the savings account unless you could keep $5,000 in it or something. So I didn't go back to having a savings account until after, you know, the 2008 crash. And then only because I didn't have to pay to have a bank account to begin with, right? My checking account was always free, but having the savings account, you had to pay or keep a minimum in. So once I didn't have to keep a minimum in it anymore, so I have a small savings, you know, just for emergencies, right? But it, isn't gonna, it wouldn't get me through the year, let's put it that way. I know it's it's always crazy to me when people say, like, in the 80s, like, oh, yeah, you know, at some point we had, like, 12% interest rate. Since my high school, like, the, inter- the, the interest rate on a savings account has been, like, less than 1% my entire life. I, and I think over the last 15, 20 years, 
maybe if you put your money in a CD, you could get 3% if you were la- like a credit union or some really good place. But that's all I know of savings is why would you ever save? No, and it's a problem because it is about how the Fed gives money at 0% interest. I mean, it should be the other way around, right? Banks are getting money from the Fed for nothing. They should actually be forced to pay real interest rates to savers, but there's no incentive to save. And then they people bemoan the fact that Americans aren't savers. Well, you're right. Why would they be? I mean, they, that's also pushing people to invest in the stock market because someone else is going to make money off of that. Yeah, it's the, the world has changed radically. It's, it's changed radically for you, but for me, it hasn't. It's just always been putting money aside is not a good idea because it doesn't grow. So the only wise thing to do would be put it in the stock market or invest in a business, maybe government bonds. Well, government bonds are safe, right? If you were, you know, a 25-year-old and you put your money in government bonds, by the time you were ready to retire, there would actually be, you would be assured that the money would be there, unlike the stock market, so. Okay. Um, Are you risk-averse or a risk-taker? I'm a big risk-taker. Sometimes too much so. Well, like when I quit my corporate job and I was talking about it with someone when I was then teaching at LAU, they were like, how could, how could you be so brave? And I had never seen it as bravery in any way. It was just, I couldn't take, you know, it was killing me to, to be there. It's not what I wanted, so I left. Some people might call that foolish, but it is what it is, right? I don't take any credit for being brave about it. When you have excess money, where do you put it? Travel. What's your, like, favorite place you've ever been? Well, I love London, you know, because I lived there for a year, and I, I used to go back all the time when I when I had the money to do so, and I have friends there. Um, it's just a, you know, it's a feeling. But I've been going to Bogota, Colombia now, for the last five years. Um, I met uh, Patricia Ariza, who runs the Colombian Theater Corporation. She's been doing this work for over 50 years. Really, you want to talk about social justice, these are people that were wearing bulletproof vests to, to do their work. Um, I admire her so much. Have you used a budget throughout your life? No, never. I've always lived within, mostly within my means. And I also, one of the byproducts of having a good corporate job is that I have a ton of credit. I have uh, a good credit rating, and that's, that is one thing I've been smart about is sort of protecting that. Um, unlike a lot of artists I know, I never had to go take my retirement money um, because I had credit. And so always made sure that I never defaulted on it, even if it was just paying the minimum amount or whatever, that's one of the reasons why if I am in a pinch, I can use a credit card. And and also I'm not, and I, I get a thousand, you know, transfers at 0% interest all the time. So as soon as I have any kind of balance that has interest charge, I just transfer it somewhere where there's 0% interest. What's been a great financial decision you've made? So I had this money in this um, retirement fund from when I was at um, AED that had just been sitting there for years. We were dealing with our insurance broker for new perspectives, and they had an opportunity for an annuity through MetLife that was a guaranteed 6% interest, you know, providing that you left it there for a certain amount of time. And that it goes up and down with the market, but ultimately when it's time you retire, it's a guaranteed amount of money that you get. And so my sister also did it, you know, she got in a little later, so hers was only 5%, but 
We had kind of been worried a little bit about it in terms of if things went bad or if we needed access to the money because it was an annuity, we weren't sure we could get it. But when all this happened with COVID, we were like, phew, you know, it's not in a regular 401k. It's not affected by the stock market. Ours is guaranteed. So that was, we realized, was the best choice we had made. So I don't have to watch a stock market account or I don't have to watch my 401k account. It's, it is it is what it is, and that's what I will get, and I, I'm not in danger of losing it. So that's amazing. That's that's awesome. <laughs> it is awesome, and and it was so popular that they 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 could they stopped doing it. All right, what has been a terrible financial decision you've made? I don't even know. I mean, there was a time when I when I was you know my finances were I was living on a lot of credit and paying a lot of interest. But I think that that's ultimately because I paid it all off what led me to have the great credit rating I have now and a gazillion offers of zero percent. Because I know they think because at one time I had a high debt level that they offer me the zero percent because you know if you default on that payment then they can jack your interest rate up to like 25 percent or something this is why i get these offers because i think that it'll go back to that and they can make money but you know i'm very very good about it now your income i guess from new perspective is it w2 or 1099 it's w2 and then do you pay your actors through equity is that w2 and your designers do they get 1099 or with the actors because it's reimbursement they don't have to have a 1099 other artists that we pay if we're paying a flat fee they get a 1099 if it's over $600 because the rule is if it's under $600 that someone makes in a year you don't have to file a 1099 it's over $600 you do so that usually means designers when we were doing a lot of work in the public schools our teaching artists would be paid more than $600 in a year there's been at times other folks who've been more regular on the administrative side um, so they would they get a 1099. Yeah, the the over six hundred dollars sending a 1099. So so I have had send people 1099s. Last year I was producing a podcast and we rented recording space. I didn't realize because I paid them over six hundred dollars that I had to send them a 1099. Well, were they incorporated or was it an individual person? Well, they have a company. They have something that says LLC. Then you don't need to send them a 1099. Which is what I thought. And then they randomly reached out and said, can I get a 1099 because of this coronavirus? Right. Some people need, yes. Some people can ask for it, even if they get under $600 because they're trying to, even before this, put together all their money so they can get unemployment or whatever. Uh, You're just not legally obligated to send it if it's but if it's a company in it and the check is made payable to the company, you don't. I know some people ask companies to give them a W-9 now. We're asked to give a W-9, and we, we never were before. And I think that there was some kind of change in the income tax law about that. But companies generally do a W-9. Well, that makes me good because I was thinking... Oh, great. Now I filed this late because I had already done everything. But maybe if I'm not obligated to, then it doesn't matter. I think the IRS has more to deal with now than whether people are filing their 1099s late. Do you file your own taxes? Yes. And for new perspectives, do you file your Yeah, I do. Because new perspectives, we have to do a Form 990, which is the nonprofit version of an income tax form. And it's not complicated because we don't have a lot of assets. So if we had sort of endowment funds and those kinds of things... 
I would need a really a real accountant to help me do that part of it. But the rest of it I can do pretty easily. And your retirement plan is just your annuity that you're getting? It is, you know, and Social Security. I actually, you know, this same woman that I had advised the annuity fund that I'm in really recommends taking your Social Security at 62. Because I'm now in the cohort that has to wait to 67. I know that's not news to you. It's not even that, I mean, I believe in Social Security and I trust it and I, I want young people to believe in it and fight for it. And I feel like if the Democrats win, if they don't win, all bets are off. There will be nothing left for anybody. But one of the things that they're really, especially Elizabeth Warren is pushing, is strengthening it because it's a lie that there's no money there. It has been a lie for 20 years. But my thing about taking it at 62 is not because I don't believe I'm going to get it. It's that I don't want to go another five years with no dependable income. Because if you take it, you don't, you can still work and all of that and you, you know, pay into the system. Having the security of, if you go early, you get 75% of what you get if you wait another five years. But to me, like waiting another five years, especially with everything that's gone on like this or in 2008 or whatever, is that I, I really think I'm going to do that just for the security of it. I totally understand. Nicole and I, you know, you could die tomorrow. It's not like we're bad savers. I mean, you could always save more, etc. We also often make decisions that are like, well, just in case we aren't around in five years, let's take advantage and just do it now. So I, I totally understand the mindset. I'm going to combine the next two questions. How important has your personal support system been and how important has your professional network been? Like maybe those are connected. They're not. Uh, my personal support system has never been great, even though I come from a big family. I'm sort of the oddball in my family. Not in a bad way, but, you know, I'm not the, the, the homeowner pursuer and all the rest of it. But my professional network has been incredibly important. I mean, I had great mentors when I was starting out. We've built teams of people, of artists that we work with over the course of many years. I joined the League of Professional Theater Women in, I think, 2010. And interestingly for that, I wasn't eligible before because they used to not see off-off-Broadway theater companies as deserving of membership, but they did a big overhaul or take in a lot, you know, they knew they needed to grow their membership. So in those 10 years that I've been a member, I've had an incredible networking opportunities and really developed strong relationships. I mean, some of the theater companies that we that we support, that we collaborate with, like Parody Productions or Pulse Ensemble, other places, came through those relationships. And we have similar missions. And so sharing of resources and advice and that sort of thing. So that's been very, very important. I want to make a comment on your personal support system. I'm from a big family as well. I think people look and see oh, you have built-in friends or built-in people you can go talk to or whatever. It's not that my family doesn't love me. I love them. They love me. We're all good. But I work in the arts and none of them do. So they just don't understand. Yeah, my, my, my siblings are supportive to the extent that they will make donations to the company. Some are more, are more supportive than others because they're more artistic. My sister that lives in New York in the same building as I is much more involved in what I do. But I think in terms of, it's just sort of a, a view of life. The view of the world is very different. I will say the thing about coming from a big family is, you know, my mother's now 85, and I know many f- people who are only children, and they the, the burden of caring for an elderly parent falls solely on them. So this is the blessing of a big family, is that no one person has to bear that burden. How much of your success is hard work versus luck? It's all hard work. Some of it is luck. The real luck is in terms of real estate, I'm telling you. 
cheap rent for me personally, cheap rent for the theater. Without that, none of this would be have been accomplished. The rest of it is hard work and, and really kind of a stupid stubbornness. It's um, just a refusal to give up, even when, you know, I think at different points, when we lost the big space, should I have just stopped New Perspectives and gone and pursued something more for myself? So the things that I count as success are that we've had an impact on truly hundreds of artists. Lots of young people, when we had a more regular program in the schools, uh, an ethos about what the work is we've managed to instill in a lot of people, I think really changed some artists' minds about what the point of their work is and how they want to, to do it, and and also their value as artists to the world. It's not about whether you're starring in a Broadway play, but it, this is a mission and a practice as much of a practice as medicine or law or anything else is. And so that I feel really good about. I do think that we probably could have been more successful financially if I, I, I don't know what the word is. It's, it's maybe a little more venal, a little more unco- a little more compromising around the mission, but it, it's just not who I am. So we might have been better had we had someone else running sort of the financial side or the business side of New Perspectives, but it is what it is. You know, a lot of people think, oh, wow, it's so successful. You've been around 30 years. And I'm like, yes, that is one thing. But but I'm not sure for myself how successful I feel in terms of what what my original goals were. But yeah, and that's also complicated because, I mean, Nicole and I, we have a timeline in our kitchen of like how old we are. You know, it goes up to age 68. And it's, you know, at age this, accomplish this, at age this, accomplish this. But it's like, how are you supposed to know what your goal is at age 20? Oh, I knew what my goal was. I knew what my goal was at age 20. And I have achieved it on one level. But I've achieved it in a much anonymous way, in a much more hidden way than I had thought. When I started New Perspectives, I really thought seven years. We, I mean, we worked with with Austin Pendleton. We had award-winning shows. We had a great theater space. We had all of that. My, my, if, if we had done it 10 years earlier, we would have been one of the second stages or the roundabouts, right? It was just the timing of it that was wrong because that was really ultimately my goal was like to be the public theater, but with a better emphasis at the time on uh, women and, 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 and minorities and that sort of thing. That was really my goal, that sort of multicultural, wide, you know, different genres, things like that. But the time had passed. All those companies that you mentioned started in the 70s when there was a ton of foundation and government money available for them to really have an infrastructure and and also spaces were cheap there was the old theater row was cheap they could a lot of them started there and that's the difference about when i say the goal certainly our ethos our mission our impact on on people has been very great really getting it out to a wider audience is the part that i don't feel we've been successful at Questions from a non-theater person. Why do a majority of theater people not have any savings or retirement savings? Nobody gets paid. Those people who are who are working on Broadway and regional theater, they get Social Security put in. They get, you know, um, equity has a pension plan if they do enough work. So much more theater is being done for free, uh, whether it's actors or designers. Nobody gets paid. A lot more actors now are working a nine-to-five job and getting paid a wage that they can invest and have a retirement in, and they're doing theater on the side. But if you're trying to do theater as your sole profession, it's very hard. It's a hand-to-mouth existence. How will COVID-19 affect the future of theater? People are doing stuff online now, 
I have always felt, as I'd say the last, not always, but certainly the last 20 years, there's way too many small theater companies in New York City. Um, there didn't used to be. And that's also part of the change. Um, Art New York, the Alliance of Resident Theaters, which is a member organization for nonprofits, survives on member dues, right, and on their, the largeness of it. When we uh, were founded and we joined Art New York, there were 100 members, and now there's over 500 members. They come and go, but I think that it is, uh, resources are, are, are so scarce and split so many ways. So one of the things that will be interesting to me is how many small theater companies actually survive. There's been a lot more sharing, I think, that there may be some opportunities for consolidation. I've been thinking about that with the companies that we work with anyway. Is there, is it the time to really say, hey, let's combine forces instead of just supporting each other as separate entities? Is there a way for us to now really come together and create a new entity that could be better funded, better supported. You know, theater is always defined as Broadway. That's a big question for a few years. You know, Broadway was on its last legs back in the 80s until there was, you know, this whole renovation of Times Square. And as we, those of us who lived at the time, hear the time, the Disneyfication of Times Square. And suddenly everything was a big Broadway musical, very new little work, all of that. So will Broadway be bailed out again? That's an interesting question. Um, because we know that small theater companies, non-Broadway companies, contribute about $2 billion a year to the revenue of New York City through restaurants and parking lots and lumber yards. You know, we all have to buy our, our lumber, and we buy it in New York as opposed to, to sets that are built in New Jersey. So there is a huge financial impact of small theater. And, and until the question can be answered as to when do we get to do live theater again, I don't know how anyone can make any predictions. Is right now a good time for someone to go into a career in the arts? To me, there was never any question that my career would be in theater. That was it. Um, there were a lot of things I could have done, but I had no drive to do them. My, my first semester of college, I had a wonderful teacher. This is in upstate New York. He had been a Broadway actor in his youth, and, and um, he'd married and moved to central New York because he wanted to raise a family there. But the first thing he said in my first theater class in college, now this is having been doing it since I was eight, remember. He said, if you can live without theater, do. The only reason to do it is if you can't live without it. Because it's too hard, it's too precarious, you will never, you know, very few of you will make a living at it. And so I think that that still exists today, which is you do theater because you can't not do it. To answer my own question, <laughs> or Nicole's question, starting now is a great time because if you can do it now, you can do it anytime. It's true, and there's so many more tools available, the whole digital revolution. Film was much harder for women back in the in the beginning of the 80s. It's still very hard. You see uh, no fem you know, the first female director to get an Academy Award or whatever. But with the digital tools that are available for doing webisodes and, you know, podcasts, you can get your voice out there, you can get your ideas out there. It's a much it's not live theater, you know, yet, but in so many other ways there's so many more tools available to artists. New York well, New York and big cities are hubs for art and for theater. With the state of the economy and a lot of actors needing to have a day job to to then be able to do theater. Is New York or a big city still a place that people should go to to pursue the arts? There are plenty of small places that are making great theater. And it's actually easier often to create the theater there and bring it to New York and to be seen. 
if new perspectives had been founded anywhere but New, new York, we would have been fully funded and fully supported because our mission at the time was so needed in Minneapolis or D.C. or Philadelphia that, as we talked about, when you say thinking about uh, hearing from older people about what it seemed easier in the past, it, it was in the sense, too, that there was people were coming here for art not to be commercial successes. Yes, actors wanted to be on Broadway, but it wasn't the same as being a movie star or being famous just to be famous. It was considered the pinnacle of your career to act on Broadway. Why people come to big cities or small cities, it really has to do with what do you as the artist get out of it? Because it was a very vibrant independent theater scene. Brooklyn is exploding with theater and very creative sort of site-specific work and all of that. What do you need as an artist? Where are you likely to get it? And what do you intend to do? And that's why I'm so glad to be talking to you because I feel like you have, the art has always been, like, well, no, your mission, which includes your art, but your mission has always been what you've just stuck to and you haven't gone off the commercial route. That's just very, very impressive to do. Because my mind sort of works the other way. I'm sort of like commercial is, I don't know, the only way to get to a bigger audience. It's not commercial, but I see Second Stage and Roundabout. I see those as commercial. They are nonprofits, but I view them as commercial. Well, they are commercial because they they have to satisfy their subscriber base. They need to get awards and things to get funding and and the endowments and the grants that they get. But look, I, I I can't take credit. Here's the thing is that I would have gladly been a little more commercial if I could have been. It's just not in my DNA. I really had no choice. It is my belief. It is my passion. It is my mission in life, really. Not necessarily a good thing when it comes to financial support for myself or for the organization, right? Okay, so moving to the wrap-up, what is your financial goal for this year? To survive, I think. That's my financial goal every year. So good news, we just got a PPP loan from the government, New Perspectives did. Tiny amount because my salary is tiny, but I know I can at least pay myself for May and June. Looking forward to, as I said, I'm going to be 62 in December, so I need to start doing that research on what it, what it will take to do uh, because because that brings a level of certainty. So that is always the struggle to be certain. What is your personal goal for this year? I need to do the work that I've put off. So for instance, we have a program looking at women playwrights from the past. And we did a book, we published a book three years ago, but now we need to publish a, an updated one. And I need to write a preface for it, really talking about this work and how we've done it and how it relates. And, you know, oh, I never have the time. So now six weeks have gone by. I could have been doing that. I did not. What is the cumulative effect of my work? I really need to put it in a place where where I'm either writing about it or I'm, you know, I don't even have my own personal website. That's a goal, to have my own personal website so that it's not just me subsumed within new perspectives all the time and just sort of look around and say now that it's almost 30 years what can I say about it how do I say it where are the platforms I want to say it on so this is wonderful this is one of the platforms that I get to you know try that out what would your goal be if money was not an issue Uh, it would be to take some of the shows that we have created and do them in a very big way a very public way and let and say here's who we are this is the work of new perspectives. This is what we've been doing for 30 years. Come and see it. Um, let it run. Have the money to support it so that it could run for enough time that, that we could really get the work out there. Since I have you on the line, uh, Artistic Director of New Perspective, I'm going to pitch a show for you and just see if this is something that could fit into the mission of, <laughs> of New Perspectives. 
<laughs> okay, do you know the musical Big River? Yes. So I have a great idea for it that involves just a wooden 12 foot by 12 foot raft hanging from chains. And the whole show is done with either lifting up one of the chains or whatever. So all the scenery is that raft. But sometimes it's a raft, sometimes it's a wall, sometimes it's a door, sometimes it's a window. And it would have to be a lot of choreography. Basically, you could not do a tiny production and you couldn't do it in your space. But do you think New Perspectives could help me produce that behemoth of a work? The one absolute in our mission is we don't do musicals. Oh, I missed that part. (laughs) Because they're way too hard to do and they're too expensive. Personally, I would be happy to talk to you about, I mean, I think it's a fabulous idea. The one time we produced a musical was for NIMP, the New York Musical Theater Festival. And it was really because we were were the nonprofit uh, umbrella for the people who was one of our resident directors. So we became their nonprofit umbrella, but we didn't really, we didn't raise any money or anything for it. So, What financial advice would you give yourself back when you started or advice that you would give somebody starting now? So to not be afraid, when I first moved to New York, you could buy a loft on Lower Broadway for $8,000. These are now worth millions, right? Back then, $8,000 just seemed so enormous. And I know someone who bought one and divided it. She's a visual artist painter. She had a huge space, and the other half she rented out. I grew up in a middle-class family, but not one that really knew about investments or or real estate. So, So that's the thing, is that... I took risks financially with my art and with myself, but I I really wish I had taken a bigger risk with real estate in New York City when I I was young and had the money. But I didn't know enough about it. Even then, I I wouldn't have qualified for a mortgage on my own, but my mother certainly could have co-signed for me, right? I just didn't know. I wasn't focused on that. This is the fifth interview I've done, and that's the second time someone has said that, to try to buy real estate if you can. Not And not to live in it necessarily, but or to make it self-supporting, let's put it that way. I wouldn't buy a house that I had to continue to pay for and all the upkeep and all of that, but to, to make it self-supporting in terms of having something that you could rent out part of it or whatever. Okay, final two questions. What separates those that have had a successful career in theater versus those that stop or never start? I think it is a sense of your mission and your passion. I think that there's a lot of People who are in theater, especially actors, and, you know, people don't like it when I say it, but I think they're in it for the wrong reason. They're not in it because it is a practice, that it is a social service. They are in it because they want to be somebody else or they want to, you know, be famous or they think they can make a lot of money as a movie star. If you're an actor and you want to be a movie star, you have to go to Hollywood. It's not going to happen in New York. If you don't have that drive... As I said, you know, my first semester of college, if you can live without theater, do. That those are people can live without it. They can have it as a hobby, or they can be in a community theater, or they can just go to the theater um, and enjoy it that way. They don't need to do it. And that's a good thing. If you don't need to do it, you shouldn't. Where can people find out more about you? So on the New Perspectives website, I have a big, huge, long bio. www.nptnyc.org. And then eventually I will have my own website sometime this year. I'll I'll link it later on. I'll link everybody to that website in the show notes. All right. Well, that's everything. Thank you, Melody, for chatting with us. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. That was our interview with Melody Brooks. My takeaways were, do not start a nonprofit company, even if you have a million dollars. Take advantage of rent-stabilized apartments, though it may not spur you to make money because your finances won't be as strained. Corporate jobs tend to provide health care and retirement plans. 
money and art are choices that we continue to make each day. Could she have made more money doing something else? Yes, but she made the choice to be an artist, and that included financial trade-offs. A professional network is of utmost importance. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a review so others can find us. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Ethan and Nicole Spimel. Producing consultant Anne Nigrin Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chang Liu.